This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. How long will you turn your face away? Hi, my name is Clarissa Mall. I am the wife of author and former CT editor Rob Mall. I became a widow in July 2019 when my husband Rob fell to his death in a hiking accident in Mount Rainier National Park. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife Dawn died of pancreas cancer on Easter Sunday of 2019. So Clarissa, how are you doing today? I Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you like that because you know what a lot of people will say is, are you okay? And that's not the good question because, no. no, no, but I think when you're asking somebody who you know is grieving, how are you doing today or now that we can answer that one. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Well, I got to admit, Daniel, I was a little bit jittery this morning. I had a dentist appointment. It's my first dentist appointment since COVID hit back in March and only my second since Rob died, but I have a lot of trouble now waking up early in the mornings when I have to be somewhere like that. Since Rob died, I set my alarm and I get up when it's dark, but if I've got to get somewhere, I feel like I have to wake up all my kids first, not just like, you know, rouse them a little bit. Hey, mom's leaving, but fully wake them up, get them sitting up in bed, talk to them for a little bit make eye contact, make sure they're fully awake and tell them that I love them. And it makes going to early morning appointments surprisingly challenging for me because I'm managing my grief alongside of doing whatever thing I have to do. Because the day that Rob died, he left early in the morning for his hike. I was sort of awake in our camper when he kissed me goodbye. Our kids were asleep in their sleeping bags. And There's a part of me that says, you can't let that happen again. You can't ever leave without a full-on goodbye. That's a heavy way to have to say goodbye to go to the dentist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's the dentist. It's the DMV. It's, you know, any early morning kind of activity where I head out of the house alone. And, you know, I try to talk myself through that. I say, okay, you're safe in your car, it's reliable, but there's still something in me that because I've experienced sudden loss, I say, you don't know what can happen on the highway between here and there. And you don't ever want to leave without taking account, without making sure that your relationships are in good order. On your first trip to the dentist after Rob died, did your dentist ask how you were doing? You know, I decided to head it off. And I wonder if you did this sort of thing too. Mm. After all those phone calls to the financial institutions and the utility companies and, you know, everything else, trying to switch things over into my name alone and and having to deal with that empty silence, it's, you know, well, this account is in your husband's name. And I say, well, my husband is deceased. Dead silence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After that, I quickly learned you got to have a line because People don't know what to say. And so before I schedule any doctor appointments, before I go any place new with my kids, I make sure that it's written on our charts that their dad, my husband, is deceased. Because if I can head off that conversation in a little exam room, it just really helps a lot. 
You're so intentional. I wish I could be more intentional. I, (laughs) you know, I think my first trip to the dentist emotionally, there was a need to say, this is me now. Mm -hmm. And I think the need was for me as much as it was for all the people I would interact with. So similarly, the dentist, uh, who's a very uh, buoyant, optimistic, happy guy, came in and, hey, how are we doing today? And I was able to say, uh, you know, my wife died last month. And dead silence, as you said. But I just let it sit there. You know, for me, I think feeling the discomfort that he felt was important for me to realize this is who I am now. Yeah. And there was a, a need at that point to embrace that a little bit. You know, my grief counselor kept pressing into me that, especially in the early season of loss, we have to be a little selfish. She didn't mean that, of course, in the way that we would think about it, self-serving, but in the way that we do have to focus on what's happened to us in the sense that we're going to be different people now. And part of being a different person is, is at least for me, the way that people perceive us. And that's kind of what I wanted to get out of the way. Like, this is how you have to look at me now. And so go ahead and let me adjust to that. Yeah, I think it's hard because a lot of grieving people that I talk to, they almost feel like it's their job to make other people feel comfortable. Like Mm. they just dropped this bomb in conversation and now they got to clean up the mess. And I think that's really tough. I know I've felt it in conversation. I, I certainly feel like that sometimes where if I choose to say something about my loss, that I'm inviting that awkwardness that's hard to navigate when you're already having a tough time navigating grief personally and intimately. I'd be curious, you know, to hear what you'd like people to say to you when you say that. I mean, the after the silence, I, I guess I appreciate most when people are able just to simply say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And then I can respond with, yeah, me too. But I'm also willing and appreciate when they say, well, what happened? You know, not that everybody needs all the details, but there's this kind of sense sometimes I get that people don't want to talk about it for fear of upsetting me. Mm-hmm. You can't make the loss hurt anymore by talking. Yeah. About it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's not awful for me when folks say, you know, what happened and I can say, you know, cancer. And then it's up to me if I want to share more, I can. If not, yeah. then we can go on. And it took me some time to get used to allowing the the discomfort to sit there. Well, I think that's a part of that steep learning curve, right? Of grief, you're you are a whole new you in the same world you used to circulate in. And figuring out who you are, how you communicate, what those relationships look like. I've got this great moment, you know, I told you about how I lead off <laughs> in advance and tell people that Rob is gone and And I told this to my HVAC company when they had to come and work on my furnace. I just wanted them to know Rob had always dealt with them and now it was my turn. And the HVAC guy who had spent a lot of time in our old New England farmhouse, he arrived and I opened the door and he just stood there with tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm so sorry. And wow, that was everything. It was everything to know that he didn't have any words and that no words was okay. And it was a relationship that grew surprisingly just because of that initial moment of compassion and empathy. And it it almost felt like a friendship. I wonder if you had those kind of experiences too, where you've had certain relationships kind of really come into focus and others sort of fade as you've navigated who you are in this new space of, you know, living with grief. 
I mean, HVAC guys, dentists, I mean, they sort of represent a, a layer of relationship that ironically sometimes can be more comforting sometimes than the people that we know better. <laughs> I mean, I think the, you know, the, the people who were mostly my friends, you know, coworkers, people that I had had known before I met Dawn, you know, they're still able to relate to me. You know, there's a sense in which they haven't experienced the loss because they didn't have the relationship with Dawn except through me. But the people who had a relationship with us as a couple, that's been much more disrupted. For some, I think the relationship with me alone hasn't been able to continue because the recalibration has just been too hard. For others, their loss was just too great and they don't know how to deal with that despite all the sympathy they might feel for me. And then for plenty of others, you know, just their own grief has just become an obstacle that to be with me is just too much of a reminder of what they lost when Dawn died. And, you know, I find that all of those relationships are complicated in these strange fashions. And, you know, because I value the friendships, I still don't always have the energy to manage all of that. And the idea of, you know, doing my grief and managing your grief, it's exhausting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've noticed the way that our relationships were sort of gendered and I hadn't really paid a ton of attention to that when I was married. I think about the years before I was married and I was in college and I had friends who were guys and friends who were girls. And then when we got married, we started to kind of just have couple friends. Like Mm -hmm. I was friends with the wife and he was friends with the husband. And wasn't it great if I met a woman where really that husband relationship clicked too? I mean, those were some tight friendships, right? And now being on my own, it's been an interesting place to navigate, trying to figure out who I am as a now single woman and yet a single woman who used to be attached. Like they see that I'm single now, but I, I mean, in my heart, I still feel very attached. So yeah, figuring out who I am now in this, there's no category for me, I don't think. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I like that. I think that I can't remember when I first had to fill out a new marital status form for something and you looked at the boxes. And so, you know, I had to check single, but it just felt so odd. Yeah. Though, even though Dawn was, I think I mentioned before that Dawn was very insistent that no, till death do us part and, you know, I'm going to die. So we're going to part. And she didn't mean that in any way other than, this is how the scriptures have set it forth and and you're free to live your life, which I think she thought of as, as a gift, not so much go out and have another relationship as much as, you know, I'm with you, but you have to, you know, figure out the future. There was this moment um, in the last uh, week of her life when she and I were trying to have some conversations around responsibility, you know, mostly for our daughter and, and she stopped herself and just took her hands and sort of symbolically handed everything over to me. And sort of afterwards, she just quit offering input. Later, after she had died and after all was over, I I caught myself for the first few weeks thinking about making decisions that had been Dawn's decisions in terms of like, how would Dawn want to do this and trying to follow what she would have want. But I caught myself at some point recognizing that I've got to take responsibility for these things. So I can't keep asking that question. I've got to do them like I would do them because she's, 
she's gone. And that was an inner shift that caught me by surprise. Well, I think that it's so important, though, because I think after loss, we have this craving to kind of memorialize, to put into concrete or solidify or make tangible this person who is now gone. And it can manifest itself in continually soliciting their wisdom you know, yeah. uh, and not finding our own voices. But I think particularly with kids whose lives are still so dynamic, there's still so much potential, so much development that's happening is super important for our kids, for them to be able to see us saying, okay, I'm stepping up to this. And I carry him or her with me, but I carry him or her with me, not as a constraining kind of person in my life, but as a liberating person in my life. Like your death has liberated me to explore who I'm going to be now. And I take you with me in all of these amazing ways, but I'm not trying to turn you into a myth. I'm not trying to turn you into a legend. And your word was not the Ten Commandments. And it's okay for me to diverge from that a little bit. My daughter and I were driving home just this week, the other night, and it's not unusual at, at night as we're coming back to the house that the three of us shared for her to express, you know, I miss my mom or I want my mom. And sometimes that will then segue into a particular memory where Dawn would have been particularly strict about a choice about clothing or something about internet usage or something like that. And my daughter sort of talked about this a little melancholily, if that's word. Yeah, mom would have not wanted me to do this. And my response was, yeah, you know, I should be more strict. I said, <laughs> And my daughter said, yeah, uh, you're really bad at that, dad. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I think the thing that, and we both laughed about that, but the thing that, again, hit me anew to your point is that, you know, the way I'm going to best honor my wife is to be who I am as a result of my relationship with her, not trying to replicate who she was. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So true. And I think that after the initial shock and disbelief that comes with those first few months of early grief, you really enter into this new season of identity exploration. Who am I? Not simply without this person, but who am I carrying this person within me? What does that look like now? And I do feel like for grieving people, that becomes our primary task, figuring out how we walk with grief and how do we remake ourselves with these indispensable parts of them still present in us in some way that bears witness to their life and ours, but also you know, is a life that is forward-looking and, and hopeful too. Are there some things you would see in yourself that are noticeably different now that wouldn't have been the case had Rob not died? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I am far less strident now in decision making. I, I'm i hesitant. I think there was a, a sort of confidence that I had that I could plan something and it would happen when he was alive and we'd somehow do it together. But now I've got to do that all by myself. and. It's just made me deliberate longer, sit with indecision longer, and have to learn to be okay with that too. But I think too, Rob's death has awakened within me gifts that he always saw that I had that I was kind of like, you know what? Just being together as a family is the most important thing to me. I love my family. I love my kids. And there are many times, even in my professional life, where 
I didn't try something new because it would interrupt this thing that we had built together. And for me, that was the most important. But I'm realizing now that there's a part of venturing new into new things that bears witness to his trust in me. And he's got this line in in his book, The Art of Dying, that if he can't be by my side, he knows that I'll make good decisions. And boy, I take that as like his blessing over me that I can try to do new things and I could take risks because he had a lot of faith in me that I could do whatever I put my mind to. And it's not always faith that I had in myself before he died. Hmm. I think for me, the thing I've noticed, you know, Don grew up a missionary kid in Angola, had gone to seminary, had had worked for a Christian publisher as an editor, and you know, very deeply immersed in her faith. And she was a woman of deep spiritual passion. And because she was such a passionate believer, I grew to rely a lot on her, her passion in those moments where I would prevaricate, you know, because my faith got all caught up in some church decision that had to be made or some sort of complaint on the part of a member of the congregation. You know, she was the one who, you know, would always point me back to the the core loves of Jesus and what we believe in in scripture and press into my idealism that sometimes got lost as a, a pastor amidst all the practicalities and pressures. And with her gone, I feel like a king that's lost his prophet. <laughs> you know, that suddenly that voice of conscience that I had grown to love and depend on is gone. And it's, it's been an interesting inner scramble in a sense. I've lost that shared faith and now I'm having to rebuild in a way, you know, my singular faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the beauties of marriage is the way that Pablo Neruda says, you know, in his poem, there is no I nor you, you know, that there's this beautiful one flesh where the one person picks up for your inadequacies, the one person supports you and you support them where they are weak. And it's hard to undo that. And it does feel like being torn apart. Well, and, you know, not only in marriage, but in any close relationship. I mean, for those relationships to progress, there has to be a, you know, an increasing vulnerability, all of these things that make relationships genuine and and beautiful and, and full, all of which are obviously two gateways to the eventual grief that's going to come when those relationships inevitably fall apart in time due to loss. And the irony that once that loss happens, you then are, are kind of forced into this space you work so hard to get out of yeah. <laughs> in order to have the relationship. And so like, how do I go back to that place where I can do without this person that I work so hard to depend upon because I don't want to do without them, but they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's lonely too. I think that it's lonely, hard work to do. And I wonder how you've got to be lonely (laughs) in that experience of new discovery and figuring out who you are now. What what does that feel like? Hmm. The loneliness, you know, for me is just this very tangible absence, uh, the deep presence of absence that that surrounds and permeates everything. I mean, even as life has moved forward, there's not a day that yet goes by that you know a stab to the gut doesn't emerge. The other night, again, my daughter and I were in the kitchen, and we've got a photo of Dawn on the, the bulletin board in our kitchen, and 
my daughter said, I miss mom. I, I want mom. But then she said something she had not said before until this week, but I'm not ever going to see her again. And, you know, that was one of those, you know, sort of stabs to the gut where on the one hand, you're like, you want your kids to embrace what's true and what's real. But, you know, when you say it and realize just how long never is, I mean, because, you know, as parents, we, you know, we want our kids to grieve too. So for that to be a a part of that for her, but it's just so sad to hear a kid say that. Yeah. That's not the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so sad. And you hate that for her. And we want to fix that for our children because we love them. But, you know, in the midst of our own grief, maybe the way we quote unquote fix it is we just share it because we know how they feel. Yeah. I talk to my kids a lot about turning toward your grief. So Mm -hmm. instead of turning your back on it, and it's just a very visual image for them. So we turn toward our grief that we don't always have to say anything. Sometimes we just attend to it by being present. So when you feel your grief in a social situation, you know, in a quiet moment, you just turn toward it. And if grief wants to talk to you, then you just listen. Or if grief just wants to be noticed, then you sit there and notice. I've used that a lot. That personification of grief, I think, has been really helpful for me just to try to take something that feels so abstract, but all over the place and bring it down into something that my brain can kind of wrap around. Was there a a moment or a a time when you can look back and realize you we're going to survive. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes I still wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you feel like you're going to survive? Well, you know, one of the things that, and we've talked about this before, but I think for me, the markers helped mm. the first year. Okay, I made it to that point. I made yeah. it to that point. And as I got through, you know, the first anniversary without hers, I got past her birthday without hers. I got through the holidays without her. And I did all of those things very intentionally. You know, I, I didn't just try to make it through, you know, for our first anniversary, I went to a place that was very special to us and wrote her a letter for her first birthday. We had a gathering of friends, all of whom had to bring a story and we raised a toast to her. And so we were very intentional about it, but, and they were all very emotional too. But welcoming those emotions, welcoming that companion of grief, as you've said, but also doing each one for the first time without Dawn gave me a kind of strength that, you know, I can live. And I think all of that came along too. I mean, like you've said, I wanted to live, mm-hmm. you know, it was, yep. I mean, I did, I wanted to live and and not just for my daughter, but for me, I mean, so somehow marking those moments they were fed by that desire too. I I was deeply anticipating the first year. I, I mentioned in the intro how Dawn died on Easter. And you know what's awful about that is Easter is a different day every year. So mm-hmm. in some sense, you've always got these two days. You've got Easter and then the day she actually died, uh, April 21st. And but still getting through both of those. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a set of routine I did on Easter Sunday, and then when her actual day of death came a couple of weeks later another set of things. But once that date was passed, there was for me a kind of page turning, a sort of, I don't know, it was just significant for me to be able to market and to go, okay, 
the 22nd, this is the first day of a new life in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's sort of a coming to Jesus, right? Some of us ease our way in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. right, and right. Others have a Damascus road experience. I mean, I can look back at that first year and I think about, I drove a thousand miles to Chicago for a holiday with family that first year. And I did it by myself. And, but I think there's not a day where I wake up and say, this is the life I wanted to live. I have to be honest about that. This isn't the life I wanted to live. And I think that for me, it's going to take a long time to reckon with that reality. And so I feel most days like I'm on the path, I'm on the hike, I can't see the summit, and I can't see the trailhead either. So I can look back and I can see some of those moments where yeah, I did this new hard thing. You know, I took my kids camping for the first time and I hitched the camper up by myself to the truck or I made it through Christmas without him. But I certainly still feel like the summit's a long way off. And I've come to be okay with that. I I don't want that to sound sort of fatalistic because I've sort of ditched the idea of grief being linear or having a timetable. I kind of feel like, hey, you know what? This is a meander through the forest and it's going to take as long as it takes. And and somewhere along the line, the trees are going to open up and I'm going to say, wow, look how far I've come. And so for me, it always comes back to God and to God's good intentions for me. I have no idea what they are, but I, I firmly believe that God's character is good and beautiful and true and that somehow in a way that I don't understand when I stood at the altar and pledged I do to Rob, God knew this would be part of my story. And so I can live it as fully as all of those happy 17 years of marriage. I can live it fully now, even though this is not the story I would have written for myself. Yeah. One of the things that I um, turned to early on after Dawn died was poetry. A friend of mine lover of poetry. I mean, I'm a very prose guy. And oh, I love poetry. <laughs> yeah, but she slipped this into my hand and it sort of really gets at this. It's, it's short. I mean, you've probably read it. It's called uh, The Thing Is by Ellen Bass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to read it. To love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat, thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief. You think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes. And you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. That poem just laid me out. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, that language and obesity of grief, but then that pivot around the simplicity of, there's so much in life we just don't get to choose. Mm -hmm. But the choice we have is whether to live what we're given, which I think in a way circles back to the goodness of God, because we, I get stuck that, you know, goodness looks like what feels and is good for me. 
but that somehow the goodness of God, especially since it comes to us, certainly as Christians, symbolized and shaped as a cross, you know, we know that that goodness is much more profound than what we would imagine it to be if we were to make it up ourselves. And can we embrace that goodness is, I think, the challenge for my life. Yeah, I think that if learning who you are again after your person has died is sort of the nuts and bolts task of the grieving person, I think that that kind of trust and turning toward God is the task of the believer in grief. That's our whole aim is to find God to be good and trust God to be good, even when it's really hard to see how that could possibly be. I think of the old hymn, you know, draw me nearer, nearer, precious Lord to the cross where you've died. That has been my prayer since Rob died, because I didn't get to draw near to his death in that kind of attending way that you had with Don. And so I look to Jesus and I say, okay, draw me nearer to whatever it means to experience your suffering and to be close to you in that, like, that's exactly what I want. And I think that that's where life is going to be found. I think that's where fullness of life can be found flourishing after we lose a person that we love. It's just drawing close to Jesus' sufferings and knowing that he will be present to us in ours. Today, we're honored to have Kyle J. Howard here with us. So excited to spend some time with him today. Kyle is a trauma-informed soul care provider, and I'm so grateful for your presence with us today, Kyle. I feel like we're going to be blessed by the time that we spend together. It's my privilege. Thank you so much for having me. So Kyle, you have a really fascinating story, and I wonder if you would begin by sharing a little bit about who you are and how you came to do the things that you do. Yes, absolutely. So um, I grew up in a family of lawyers and my mother's a a civil attorney. My father's a criminal defense attorney. And uh, I kind of grew up in a home where the law and debates and all that kind of stuff was very much central (laughs) in uh, upbringing. When I was about 12 years old, I was hit with a uh, severe bout of depression, suicidal depression. Basically, it began then and followed me throughout my life, especially my teen years. At about 15 years old, I ultimately uh, joined a gang, just trying to find a sense of community. And um, at 18, I was uh, radically converted through the uh, work of a campus ministry at West Georgia University. After that, um, I joined a church at that point, felt called to the ministry, called to pastoral ministry. So I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I served at a local church as a lay leader, a community group leader, doing a lot of crisis counseling and soul care. It was in that environment while I was a seminary student and also, again, a lay leader that my wife and I began experiencing some very deep spiritual abuse and some racial antagonism and spiritual abuse within that environment. That led to uh, some profound uh, spiritual trauma in our lives. We ultimately decided to pack up and move back to Atlanta where I could establish ministry and begin deeper process of healing as I began uh, a ministry of caring for other people who had gone through uh, similar experiences that my wife and I had gone through, both on the regards to uh, racial experiences in predominantly white churches, uh, as well as just spiritual abuse in general. Though I'm a comprehensive soul care provider, those are the two fields that I've kind of anchored myself in is spiritual abuse and trauma uh, recovery and racial trauma. Well, 
It sounds like you stepped into the fire there in some ways in your experience. And as a person who has experienced the traumatic loss of a loved one, I know that we carry trauma in our bodies. And I wonder what that experience has been like for you to carry that trauma, to process it, particularly in the context of the Black church, which we know has a strong theology of suffering and a real devastating acquaintance with grief. Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, there's a lot of layers there. So um, I guess the most pronounced experience regarding um, racial trauma and those kinds of things happened in our most recent church context. That's kind of a reality that my wife and I have endured within the church pretty much as long as we've been believers, about 15 to 18 years now. And a lot of that has to do with the fact of being an interracial couple. I'm Black, she's Asian, and there's a lot of stereotypes and certain racial projections that go into that. There's always kind of been a uh, reality of uh, struggle as it relates to kind of fitting into a church as an interracial couple, whether that be in many ways the Black church or the white church. We kind of always feel like spotted birds to some regards. Now, with that being said, though, it was most of my Christian life has been within white evangelical spaces. And in those spaces, I've navigated them as a black man who also has own challenges when it comes to mental health things. As I mentioned before, at the age of 12, I began experiencing severe uh, depression. It was at 18 that I was diagnosed as being bipolar and a kind of a mild bipolar. And so When it came to the experiences that we had in a more recent church, it triggered a whole lot of things. I, I, it was probably years since I had like a serious depression episode and I went from having none to almost to essentially having suicidal ideations almost daily, if not weekly. For me personally, the experience of the trauma resulted in loss of hair, uh, all of my facial hair, Uh, my beard basically fell out and wouldn't grow back for a few years. My hair began thinning at top, you know, turning gray. I gained about 60 pounds. Despite my diet not really changing much, I still gained a lot of weight. It's hard to describe it in terms, but it was very clear that the environment that we were in was literally killing me. And so that was a large influence as to why we felt that we needed to not just simply change churches, but we had to get out of that entire city in order to actually begin healing in a way that could produce actual flourishing rather than kind of suffocation. A question I would have for you, Kyle, is thinking about grief. And as I've heard your your story, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about suffering and grief as sort of typically private and somewhat episodic in predominantly white communities versus how suffering and grief really is the base note or the undercurrent or so much a part of the, the narrative in predominantly black communities and how that serves us in our grief. Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, if I could put it in simple terms, I would say that as much as many more orthodox spaces will critique a health, wealth, and prosperity theology and gospel, I do believe that white evangelicalism by and large has embraced a triumphant theology that inhibits it from actually being able to embrace the kind of walk that even Christ himself calls us to, which is one of profound self-denial and even suffering. And what you find in a lot of worship spaces, especially in spaces where the dominant or the most consistent posture is one of power and privilege, 
you find a lot of triumphant music and triumphant praising, where as opposed to if the community that you're in is one that has dealt with a lot of suffering, you hear a lot more songs about the joy of Christ in the midst of suffering. And I know this is kind of a hard thing to say, but I honestly think that there's a lot of truth to it, that in many churches, traumatized people are enemies to the spirit of community in that church. When the spirit of the community is one of joy, peace, and happiness, and how Christ has conquered all things, and everything's great, and you have someone who is broken, and they're not just broken in a way where it's like they can get over it in like a day or two, but no, this is a haunting pain, those people can essentially be perceived as a killjoy. Talk about a catch-22. When you're in a space and the person who is born of God, has the spirit of God, and has experienced profound suffering, maybe even haunting pain or trauma, the way that they now view Christ has been completely revamped. They now look at Christ and they are entering into the suffering of Christ through their own pain. And so when they look to Jesus, they don't see Jesus in kind of the royal sense of the cross, they see Jesus in the suffering sense of the cross. And if they're in a space where the church by and large sees Jesus in only one kind of way, and the person who sees Jesus in a deeper kind of way or in a way of in relation to suffering, there's a profound disconnect that leaves those people feeling alienated. They can see those who have as being a hindrance to their vision of Jesus because their vision of Jesus is a triumphant Jesus, not a uh, broken Jesus. And I would argue, and I think this is where there's a huge distinction between the white and black church, is that the black church as a suffering community, even a traumatized community, has always seen the glory in Christ's suffering. They've seen the royalty in the suffering of Christ, where white evangelicals have largely seen that as being part of the scandal, not part of the glory. Oh, I love that. The royalty of the suffering Christ is a lot of times grief ministry is kind of it's niche ministry in the church, right? It's uh, or trauma ministry. We we have special ministries that we dedicate to that, and certainly that's a part of it. But you know, I like to say that grief ministry is whole church ministry. And I wonder how does the black church do this well? How does grief become communal? How do we carry each other this way in ways that the broader church could do better? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And so when I'm doing our uh, soul care, trauma informed soul care. Part of the process there is kind of deconstructing the theology that they currently have and helping them to look at the gospel and look at suffering itself through more of a redemptive posture, which is something that has been part of the black church tradition for a long time now. That's again, that's the theology of redemptive suffering. In the black church tradition of redemptive suffering, it's a robust understanding about how our union with Christ is most uniquely felt and um, accessed as we suffer with Christ. For the black church, uh, we haven't had the posture of looking at the cross or looking at Christ as being simply Christus Victor. To us, the cross has always been symbolic of the reality that Christ is the suffering God. And as we suffer, we uniquely experience what Christ endured on our behalf, you know, for our sake and for our salvation. Not that suffering is good. No, suffering, all suffering is evil because it's all a byproduct of the fall. But within my suffering, I am able to enter into a unique realm where I experience to some degree what Christ himself had to go through in order for my redemption. And so I become more like Christ as I suffer. 
we're in majority uh, white church spaces, at least from my experience, suffering is seen as something that's more a taboo that gets in the way of doing real Christian ministry or real gospel work. But here in the West, suffering is not something that's seen as, hey, with suffering comes deeper understanding of who God is and greater measures of Christ's conformity to me. Rather, suffering is again seen as something that's taboo. And so weeping with those who weep, coming alongside those who, who suffer, not just in a moment, but in a, a, in a long-term kind of suffering, instead of people seeing that as an opportunity for glory, people see that as a profound inconvenience. And those who suffer are not cared for, but are rather ostracized. In, in these conversations, when we're talking about the dynamics of suffering, we're talking about issues of, say, trauma. I do think, uh, specifically even racial trauma, the cultural postures of different communities does end up playing into the theological formulations of those communities. And it, you end up seeing the overflow of that in the way in which churches are practiced and the various cultures that are in churches. So that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that the black church is flawless in regards to how it cares for people who suffer. But it does say that when it comes to a black church, there is a consciousness that likely all the members of this body are profound sufferers. And I joked with recently with another black pastor as we were talking about community groups. I said the black church doesn't have gospel community groups. The black church has barbecues. And the, the point that I was try- was making there, and of course he laughed because he understood it, was within certain white evangelical spaces, you have to force community, you know, because it's, you know, everyone's kind of, you have that hyper individualism. And so you have to put mechanisms in place to ensure that all these hyper individualistic people are going to come together and actually have some kind of sense of community. But here's the thing, you can sustain that as long as you don't have profound suffering coming in and messing things up. Because when profound suffering comes in the midst of a superficial community, that's where you'll start encountering people's real commitments to said community. And when profound suffering enters into that space, people begin to bail. So I I think that when we have these conversations about suffering in the church and why do uh, some churches seem to be very anemic when it comes to how they engage and even understand suffering uh, from a Christian perspective, I think that uh, one of the things we can't avoid is the fact that profound suffering has the tendency of exposing superficial community. Mm. But at the same time, there are certain determining factors that demonstrate whether or not that community is a family. Profound suffering isn't disqualifying you know, for family. It can be disqualifying for a community because the community got to keep moving. They got to keep going. And someone who's having to process complex trauma, they got to sit for a while. But a family is okay with sitting with you. It's, it's one of the reasons why when I think of Job, I think that Job's friends get a lot of bad flack. And I think some of it is warranted because they gave him vain counsel. But at the same time, his friends sat there. They mm-hmm. sat there and they sat with them and they didn't demand he talk. They didn't demand he get better. They were just willing to sit with him in his grief. Those friends were not superficial friends. They were misguided friends, but they were real friends. You know, and so I think they get a lot of flack for giving the vain counsel, but I think a lot of that has to do with the hyper-intellectualism that also can plague many evangelical spaces, where it's about what they said. It's not about their presence. Mm. We're not even at the point of practicing real presence let alone the council. We give vain counsel and we practice superficial presence. They practice genuine presence and just gave bad counsel. And so I, I think that there's things that can be learned about what does it really mean to 
sit with someone in suffering. And if I could add just this real quick point is that I don't think that we recognize the honor and the privilege it is to sit with someone in their suffering, that spending long times or long seasons with someone who is in profound suffering or is carrying with them trauma is not just simply mission. It's not just simply community. It is God extending to us the privilege and opportunity of entering into sacred space and entering into an opportunity of glory to be able to sit with someone as they are being conformed into the image of Christ and having being able to be a in some way, shape, or form an instrument in that process. And so if there was one thing that I could just free people from with my words, it would be to deconstruct the idea that you have to disconnect your soul from your affections in order to be a faithful Christian. And so if you are sad because of profound loss or profound pain, it is okay to sit in that sadness, to be overwhelmed in that sadness and to express that sadness. There's glory in that, not shame. There's beauty in that, not shame, because that demonstrates not only that you are human, but also that God has made you and and you are operating out of the capacities in which God himself in his wisdom has created and has endowed you with. If you're human, you have suffered in profound, deep ways. But the problem is people are too afraid to talk about it. So everyone suffers in silence, but everyone's carrying it. And so if we can just open up the floodgates and say, okay, let's get it all out. We can advance a lot of places, (laughs) you know, as a church. But the thing is that we got to get, we got to deconstruct the toxic theology that makes people afraid to be transparent about their pain. Mm. Well, thank you for being that person to step forward and be transparent and lead the way in that. I just want to close with this thing that you said that's really, I'd like to carry it with me into my day that. Jesus is still beautiful in the midst of our suffering. And I think if there's anything to, we really need to learn as a church, it's this, that the victory in Jesus is the victory that's found in his wounds and that there's blessing and peace there. And that's what we really need as grieving people. Amen. Jesus, when you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up? Calm this raging sea. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by The Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up and calm this raging sea? Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips.
Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.